You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. In for Jonathan Capehart this week, I'm Leanne Caldwell, an anchor here at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. This week, we are joined by Amber Phillips. She's a politics reporter at the Washington Post. Amber, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Leanne. Thanks for having me. Of course, we have to talk this week about that explosive testimony in the January 6th Select Committee. Of course, there was a star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. She is a former top aide to former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. To start that hearing, they played video of her testimony, of her deposition, where she explained what the president said and did that day. Let's listen. I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. So you have a president who knows that there are armed supporters out there. Once right. the magnetometers taken away, why do you think, Amber, the committee wanted the audience wanted the public to hear that. Why did they play that video? Yeah, it's a good question, Leanne. They wanted to, I think, contrast that behind the scenes moment where Trump is being warned that his supporters have arms, that he, you know, that Cassidy had talked earlier about how Trump was also warned, his top aides were warned that violence could happen that day. People were very worried about it. Uh, so there's this behind the scenes moment behind the tent this could get really ugly, is the message being presented to the president. And then they immediately contrast that with what the president said moments later when he walked on stage and gave that hour plus long speech at the Stop the Steal rally, where he said, I'm paraphrasing, let's go to the Capitol. I'm going to go with you. I'll be there with you. Let's go to the Capitol. So he knew, he was informed, according to testimony and evidence the committee has provided so far, that his supporters were ready and primed for violence and had weapons on them, so much so that they couldn't even get into President Trump's speech, and he sent them to the Capitol anyway. Uh, I think that paints a picture, and is what the committee wanted to paint, of a president who wanted to stay in power at all costs, even Mm. if it came down to political violence. Mm. There's so many things that we heard on Tuesday about, you know, that were just jaw dropping, you know, what you just mentioned. Also, um, you know, the Secret Service incident. I want to hear from you. I've been asking a lot of people, what was what stuck what stuck out to you the most? What do you think was the most important part of that testimony? I think it was what I just said, the committee painting this picture of a president wanting to stay in power at all costs. When you layer what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, like you said, um, him not caring that his supporters were armed, sending them to the Capitol, trying to wrestle away the steering wheel from a Secret Service agent so he could go. I mean, just a, a president completely out of control and focused on one thing, getting power and staying in power. Layer that onto onto what the committee has talked about for this past month, which is uh, laying out evidence how the president tried to strong arm state lawmakers and top Justice Department officials to work the levers of government to help him keep him in power. 
And what you have is some pretty compelling evidence that the president attempted a months-long coup. And Leanne, that's exactly what committee members said when they started this uh, these hearings earlier this month, that they were going to set out to prove. I have this image of Cassidy Hutchinson cleaning up ketchup off the wall after Donald Trump threw his plates at the wall after hearing that he, A.G. Barr said that he did not win the election. That's just stuck with me all week. I wanna, Do you think that she was a credible witness? Did she come across that way? I do, yes. I think the committee knew that she's not a household name, and that's their main problem, right? We all were like, even in a number of people who follow politics I've talked to were like, Cassidy Hutchison, I got to get cut up on her when she started being interviewed by the January 6th committee. Um, and so they spent a lot of time at the beginning of this hearing laying out why she's credible, that she rose the, from the ranks of being an intern to some of the most conservative, high profile members of Congress, Steve Scalise, Ted Cruz, over to the White House to be a loyal aide to President Trump. She was there. Um, for most of his tenure, if not all of it, which very few aides stayed around to do. It, she was a liaison between Capitol Hill and, and the White House. And of course, January 6th played out between these, these two locations. Uh, and, and then she was eventually rose the ranks to be this top aide to the top aide to President Trump. So her credentials uh, are legitimate. That makes her believable. But again, the committee felt like, and I, and I agree with their strategy, they need to spend a lot of time trying to underscore why uh, America needs to hear from this person that they've never heard of before. And part of the problem with the committee's approach is that they have been unable to get top aides, like former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, to testify. Remember, Meadows handed over thousands of text messages and then just stopped and said, I'm not going to participate, got held in contempt of Congress for it. Uh, three other top aides have been held in contempt of Congress as well for refusing to comply with the subpoena. Others went before the committee and pled the fifth for much of the time. And so the best the committee could get was this was this aide who's still a very high level aide, but wasn't a household name. So I, to sum up, yes, she's believable. But the committee uh, needed to spend a lot of time and arguably still needs to spend a lot of time underscoring why Cassidy Hutchinson uh, is someone who would know about these conversations. You wrote a great piece for The Post detailing what we know about what the president did that day. So mm -hmm. what do we know? What did you write? And what do we not know still? Yeah, we know that he spent his morning, Leanne, just working the phones that day. He was calling and calling and calling his political advisors, his lawyers, uh, even people on Capitol Hill. And then eventually, when it's time to go to the rally, Vice President Pence. And what we know from the committee's investigations and Washington Post and others on reporting is that the president really pressured Pence in that moment one final time to unilaterally reject state's electoral results that day. And Pence put out a statement shortly after that phone call saying, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so we know that the president was really, really focused, it appears, on trying to manipulate what was going to happen in Congress that day. Then we know he went to the rally and Cassidy Hutchinson helped filled out a lot of behind the scenes details that he's in this tent uh, before he goes and gives his speech and he's hearing that his protesters are armed and he uses curse words to say, I don't care, take away security. 
Uh, and then we know that he publicly gives an hour-long speech where he sends them to the Capitol. After that, Cassidy is really, uh, excuse, excuse me, after that, Leanne, is really the big question. What did he do or not do to stop the violence? Uh, and I think that's something the committee has yet to spend a lot of time on, though they've touched on it with a number of these hearings. Uh, one, uh, I think, key piece of evidence from Cassidy Hutchinson came um, came on Tuesday, and that's when she said that she heard a White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, going over to Mark Meadows, Cassidy's boss, who's just on his phone, perpetually scrolling, sitting on a couch as the violence was playing out. And Pat Cipollone is just in a fury trying to get Mark Meadows to go talk to the president. And according to Cassidy, Mark Meadows says he doesn't want to call off the protesters uh, at all. And Pat Cipollone basically grabs Mark Meadows and drags him out and goes to talk to the president. We don't know what was said, but we know it took several hours after the attack had been started and in, uh, from President Trump to send a video telling protesters to stand down. And according to Cassidy Hutchinson, that only happened because his aides told him he'd get impeached in his final days in office if he didn't. Uh, so I think the key question that the committee really wants to paint is how much advice like that of Pat Cipollone did the president ignore and and let this violence play out in the Capitol? You know, we learned two things from this, or two things happened after this committee. One is that the committee subpoenaed Pat Cipollone, who you just mentioned, top, who has not cooperated with the committee fully. Um, and also that Liz Cheney said that there could potentially, there was some witness tampering or intimidation of witnesses. Very briefly, where do you expect that to go next and to come out of both of those things? Yeah, I've been talking to legal experts specifically about the witness tampering, and they said what the committee needs to prove to try to uh, refer a crime to the Justice Department for them to consider prosecuting is whether President Trump was involved or his top aides in calling up witnesses and saying, essentially, don't talk to the committee. <laughs> uh, President Trump reads the transcripts is, is what we heard. And then proving that President Trump and his top aides were behind that and that they did that with the intention of hiding the truth to protect President Trump. That has to be there for witness tampering to be a crime that's prosecuted. Uh, with Pat Cipollone, I think it's gonna be a battle to try to talk to him. Uh, I understand why the committee wants to talk to him. He, like I said, he was in the rooms at these pivotal times giving legal advice saying, don't do this. At one point he told Cassidy, we're gonna get charged with every crime imaginable if we go to the Capitol, but he hasn't, been talking at all. He's He's been a near silent figure. And so it could be a battle, maybe, that ends up in a contempt of Congress charge uh, if Pastor Thelony doesn't talk to the committee. And as we know, the committee is not done with their investigation, so there's more to come. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And up, up next, we will talk with our opinions columnist. Stay with us. And now I want to bring in our opinions columnists, Ruth Marcus and Jennifer Rubin. Welcome to both of you. Nice Hi, to be morning. here. Great. Um, so Ruth, I want to follow up on Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. You wrote, never in American history has there been a portrayal of a president so unfit for office or so willing to betray his oath in a desperate bid to retain power. What did you find was so damaging? 
Well, I think there were two things that were damaging or two buckets of things that were damaging. Uh, the first was, as you were, you were talking about the ketchup incident, the literal out of controlness of this president in his anger at the election results and his compulsion to remain in power, to basically seize power illegally. Uh, the second was something that Amber focused on, which is the knowledge that we now have that we didn't have before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony about the president's understanding, clear understanding that his supporters were heavily armed, that he didn't care that they were heavily armed, and that he, with the knowledge that they were heavily armed, incited them, whether legally incite, whether that rises to the level of legal incitement, encouraged them to march on the Capitol, and not just march on the Capitol to protest, but to fight. Uh, that is very damning, um, potentially legally, certainly morally. And Jennifer, you know, these hearings have been explosive, but do you think that it has changed the minds, the opinions of any Americans about what happened on January 6th or about the former president? There is some polling evidence to indicate that more, slightly more Americans now want him prosecuted. I think what you're seeing now is the full effect of the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony work its way, not through the MAGA ranks, not through Trump inner circle, but through perhaps Republican elites, donor classes, other longtime operatives and veterans. And the beneficiary of this, I think, is Ron DeSantis, because I think many Republicans are looking at this who were not true believers, but who enjoyed the benefits of Donald Trump from their perspective, a very conservative Supreme Court, which I think we'll talk about, um, tax cuts. They are really kind of sick of this three ring circus. And so they would like to continue on with the things that they liked from Trump, but without Trump. And I think this was a very uncomfortable reminder that he is such a pain in the neck to deal with, to put it mildly. Couldn't they simply move on? I don't think we should ever expect for Republicans to renounce Trump, although that would be the moral decent thing to do. I envision and said them quietly backing out of the room and saying, oh, we like this guy better, and this guy being Ron DeSantis or someone else. Mm -hmm. Ruth, you know, there's still more hearings. What would you like to hear or learn in those upcoming hearings that are supposed to take place in July? Well, the question might be more who than what, um, though they intersect. I would like to hear from Pat Cipollone. I think that is entirely reasonable and justified by the committee. Uh, I don't have extraordinarily high confidence that we will, but I believe we should. Similarly, I would like to hear, and I don't have very much confidence at all, uh, to hear from Mark Meadows uh, about what his conversations were with the president, both on the morning and afternoon of January 6th, and also in the previous days when the president was apparently instructing him to go speak with, and I would say plot with, the insurrectionists who were gathered at the Willard Hotel trying to figure out how to um, execute the coup on January 6th. So these, these are individuals, and there are more members of Congress and others, who the American public or its representatives deserve to hear from. Whether or not the committee is capable of doing that, the Justice Department has its own capacity to, um, with a grand jury, uh, obtain witness testimony. 
And I hope that um, it pursues that capacity to the maximum as well. Jennifer, Donald Trump attacked Cassidy Hutchinson, calling her a total phony and a wacko. You know, she is 25 years old. She is perhaps the only person who is best or willing to speak up against the most powerful person in the Republican Party and his entire apparatus. What does it tell you about the impact that she might be having or Donald Trump's strategy, the fact that he is attacking her so personally? I think he lashes out like a wounded animal when somebody gets a clear shot at him. Um, and I think she did. Um, at some level in his lizard brain, he must understand that he's in some degree of peril. So he does what he always does. He engages in character assassination. And worse, he sicks his people on her. And what we saw were those two messages. We subsequently learned one of them was, at least one of them was directed to Cassidy Hutchinson, essentially engaged in witness tampering. Um, you know how to be loyal. We want you on our side. We know you're going to do the right thing. These implicit and frankly rather clumsy uh, threats that she better uh, toe the, the party line. But we also have seen through other witnesses like Ruby Freeman, like Shea Moss, um, that the mob takes their marching orders from him, that they engage in unbelievable harassment online, in person, and they make these people's lives miserable. And that is part of what is so frightening about Donald Trump, that we have a street gang, a street army of people, not unlike fascist regimes in the 1930s, who through either direct or indirect signaling, take their power and take their numbers to the street um, to use extra legal means to pressure people and to torment people and intimidate people. And I think that's part of the very scary picture we've seen. And I hope that would weigh on the minds of Merrick Garland and his prosecutors as they're deciding what to do about this. Do we let this kind of apparatus um, at which the former president of the United States still sits atop, do we let that go on with impunity? Uh, and I think we're going to have to uh, see how the rest of the evidence plays out. But I think this was a, uh, a good week, if you will, for people who think the president should be criminally held liable for this. Ruth, as Jennifer noted earlier, there might be some change in opinion of a small percentage of Americans uh, based on these hearings, after these hearings. But still, the country is so divided on what they think about what happened on January 6th and Donald Trump, two completely different realities. Have we seen this before in American history? I, I think we have and we haven't. We have in the sense that um, during Watergate, there was division until close to the very end, partisan division about what the president had done and uh, what the consequences of that should be, president being Richard Nixon. Uh, eventually, the facts caught up with Nixon and forced his party to uh, basically execute, uh, put into uh, operation uh, his departure from office. I think the difference is now that facts have less capacity to change minds than they did previously. I wanted to say one quick thing about the potential political implications of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. I think it, it's certainly not going to be on the change minds in the MAGA crowd. It may change some minds among the remaining re reasonable Republican crowd. It also could change minds among people like me. I'm uh, much more skittish and 
nervous and apprehensive than Jennifer is about the notion of indicting a former president, um, having his chief uh, for this administration to prosecute somebody who remains their chief political rival is a very, very momentous step. And it's a step that should give, I think, all of us pause. I think to the extent that Katsidi Hutchinson and other testimony really highlights the danger and continuing danger of Donald Trump and the outrageousness and outrageous potential criminality of his conduct, that affects my balancing of the equities of prosecuting Trump as well. And so that's another impact of the hearings. Jennifer, if Donald Trump decides to run for president again in 2024, how do you think he frames January 6th? Does he continue to talk about it? He is incapable of not talking about it. It is his ongoing obsession, which is one of the reasons many Republicans um, who are veterans of these sorts of things, um, even people who are sympathetic to him, really don't uh, want um, to replay the 2020 election. They would like to run on what they see as the shortcomings of the Biden administration, what they see as the benefits of the Trump administration. This is not a good topic for them. Um, we talk about how many Americans are still in this Never Never Land, but about 65% of the public um, knows what he did was wrong, thinks it was illegal. Uh, about 60% want him held criminally responsible. That's not a good number to go into in a presidential election where you have to ultimately appeal to people beyond your core base. So I think there are people out there um, who are um, nervously looking at one another. And I will say this. Every once in a while, I dip my toe into Fox News to see what their audience is hearing and seeing. And I must see this week, there was a remarkable number of moments in which Fox coverage talked about this and talked about Donald Trump in a disparaging way. I'm not talking about the nighttime hosts who have acted as his chorus, as his Greek chorus. I'm talking about um, their normal daytime coverage, which in the past had kind of skidded away from it, had um, really kind of downplayed it, at times not covered it at all. So I think it is getting through, it's leaking through. And when you have a topic that is this high profile, it's not only whether you watch it directly, but it then resonates in the mainstream media, in the conservative media, in social media. So it does begin to permeate into the Republican Party. And for those people who would just not want to go through this ordeal once again, I think it may make a, deci a helpful decision for them um, that maybe it's time to move on. I want to change gears. There was a lot of news regarding the Supreme Court this week as well. Definitely want to touch on that. It was a week ago today that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So, Ruth, what sort of how is this mobilizing Republicans and Democrats and especially independents heading into the 2022 midterms? Well, um, you see Democrats who had ample warning that this was coming, not just from the oral argument where the courts seemed inclined to go in this direction, but obviously from the unprecedented leak that we saw of the opinion. Democrats are seizing on this as they should, um, both for substantive and political reasons. Substantively, it's a disaster, as the dissenters pointed out, for American women and for the rule of law. Um, Politically, it is an enormous opportunity to change the subject from something we haven't talked about very much today, which is 
the president's terrible poll numbers, the reason for those terrible poll numbers, primarily uh, the explosion of inflation and people's real sense. I think it was, it's up to 85% that the country is headed in the wrong direction. Uh, so this is a, you know, there's always been a conversation about whether abortion rights could be a galvanizing force for Democratic voters as they as it has been for Republican voters. For Republican voters, it was focused on gaining control of the Supreme Court. They did that. They succeeded, if not beyond their wildest dreams, to the point of their wildest dreams. Now we will see if those suburban women, the independents, and the women who uh, make up a majority of the electorate, though, you know, obviously some women are uh, opposed to abortion rights, um, will really respond uh, in November. At the same time, uh, that could be tempered by a lot of understandable democratic frustration that the administration is not on its own doing enough. I have real questions about whether there are steps, practical legal steps that the administration can take on its own through executive order to combat this. It really needs to be combated at the polls, um, but it is an opportunity for Democrats that they didn't have before, an unfortunate opportunity. Jennifer, you wrote this week about the Kansas referendum. Uh, voters are going to head to the polls August 2nd to decide the fate of abortion in that state. Can you talk about the significance and what is at stake on, in that vote? It's a very interesting early test of the salience of this issue. Essentially, the Kansas State Supreme Court held that under their constitution, um, there was a right to personal autonomy. It was language that the dissenters in the federal Supreme Court um, would have thrilled to. Um, but it basically said, Within the state constitution, women have um, a right of personal autonomy, a uh, right of privacy. They ought actually upheld many regulations because that right is not uh, unbridled. Uh, um, and now the pro-life forces, the anti-abortion forces, um, want to get um, this reversed. They essentially want to put a measure on the ballot. There will be a measure on the ballot that says, no, no, no. There's really no abortion right um, in the state constitution. And this would set up Kansas for the type of bans that we've seen in other states. Um, I think this has absolutely lit a fire under the pro-choice forces. And although Kansas is a very conservative state, um, I think this is an opportunity to test just how much uh, appetite people in red states have for these very draconian, complete bans uh, Kansas would no, like, no uh, doubt uh, contemplate a, a, one of the extreme varieties with perhaps no exception for incest or rape or uh, even life of the mother in some cases. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to get a really early indication about um, whether um, the Republicans are the proverbial dog that caught the bus. Um, do they really want to defend this uh, position and how much it's going to hurt them uh, even in a red state? And we are out of time. We did not even get to talk about how the Supreme Court re really remade the country this past two weeks on issues of guns, the EPA, abortion, um, really different heading into the summer and in this next phase of where we're at. But Jennifer Rubin, Ruth Marcus, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Nice to be Thanks here. So much. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's first look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.